Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. I'm going to get right down to it because we're covering, uh, we're covering some um, uh, challenging topics and um, t- uh, topics that require that we engage our minds. But the scriptures tell us that we're supposed to renew the, not just the heart, but the what? Yes, exactly. Paul said that. We're to renew our minds. But to renew our minds means we have to engage with our minds. Isn't that true? And he also told us something else. He said it's really important that in spiritual battle that we put on the what? Yeah, the armor. And specifically as it's related to this what? The belt of truth. And putting on the belt of truth, uh, that takes some work, that takes some effort. And, um, and you, you, can't, you can't just kind of let it hit you. We live in a day and age when the truth is being trampled. And like never before, uh, ne- never in my lifetime have I seen the need for truth more than I see it right now. And if you have children or grandchildren, you know more than anyone how true these words are. I'm getting a lot of echo feedback. Maybe you're hearing that. That's okay. Uh, so it's very, very important that we, uh, that we engage in this. So I, I say that in preliminary. So some of the concepts that we're dealing with are difficult. It's easy to be deceptive. Did you know that? By, by the way, did you know it's easy to demolish a house? It's easy to demolish a house. Very easy. Um, many years ago when I was flying, uh, the pastor of, of the church plant we were in, and he, uh, they, they, were, they were going to renovate a place and then add to it for a church plant where I, was, where I was flying. And so they put me and another pilot on the demolishing, uh, uh, demolition uh, piece. And we were so good at it, they figured that we would be able to put up drywall in a room. That was a mistake. We, the two of us, the two pilots, and I, we had so much fun that evening. We were talking, we were putting up drywall, and the board chair came in, and he was literally angry. <laughs> Very angry with us. What are you guys doing? I said, well, we put up drywall. You can't do that with gaps like this. <laughs> do you know how much filler that takes? Do you know how much sanding it? No, I have no idea. How much does it take? <laughs> okay, what I'm saying is, it's easy to be deceptive with truth. All you have to do is raise doubt. That's what Satan does. Anybody can do it. It is quite another thing to understand and put on truth. That takes effort. That takes discipline. You can't do it half asleep. Is that true? Oh yeah. So all that to say is, I want you, are you gonna engage with me in the truth today? Okay, I'm, I'm gonna try to make it as understandable as I possibly can uh, so that I can understand it for what I'm saying, okay? <laughs> and then maybe you can understand it uh, too, if I can understand it. Then you will have no problem at all. Lord, 
We choose to engage now because there are a lot of lives depending on it. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, uh, we talked about Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we gave some evidences for uh, key ones, the evidence from the law of cause and effect, you know, the chicken and egg kind of uh, thing, and the evidence from the law of thermodynamics, entropy, uh, or the running out of usable energy, which indicated that at some point it must have been full. Evidence from the general theory of relativity, the universe is expanding, therefore at some point it must have started. The Big Bang was the result. We talked about that, right? You remember? Okay. Yep. And then finally we looked at the evidence from consciousness. The brain is material, but the mind is immaterial. And the two are not the same. They interact and they interrelate, but they're not the same. And Scripture is very, very clear about that. Body, soul, and spirit talks about it. Lots. Now, let's look at another one as we begin this particular uh, message. And I begin with, a, um, with an example from the news that we're all familiar with. I was trying to figure, which one do I take? And uh, remember, on May the 25th, 2020, uh, George Floyd died. And that's, you know, that's just major news, and it continues to be major news, right? Officer Derek Chauvin knelt on George Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes. While Floyd was handcuffed, lying face down on the street, he kept pleading, I can't breathe. And after several minutes, Floyd stopped speaking. For the last couple of minutes, he lay motionless, and Officer Kuhn found no pulse when urged to check. Yet Chauvin, uh, Officer Chauvin, ignored pleas from bystanders to lift his knee from Floyd's neck, and he died. Now, I, I want to ask you this question. Did it upset you when you saw it? Yes. Did it? Yes. It, it, it should have. If there's a beating heart in you, it, sh it should upset you. It upset us, and I know it did you too. <laughs> Did you feel there must be some kind of justice or accounting? But why? You say, well, because the Bible teaches that we shouldn't do that. Well, that is true. It, it does teach that, right? The Bible does teach that. But how do you explain that it sparked such outrage around the world that people took to the streets in many cities? The outrage wasn't just felt by Christians, it was even felt by... Non-Christians, uh, young people, are you into, uh, in your schools, you're taught that bullying is neutral, right? You can bully if you want. Is that what you're taught? No. In fact, it, it's a horrific thing. Bullying, it's big news nowadays, right? Is it? Now, is it, is it, is it good or is it bad? Is it neutral? And if you see somebody doing it, do you feel that they're doing something wrong? Many say, no one should impose their moral views on others because everyone has the right to determine right and wrong for themselves. You ever hear that? Nobody should impose their moral views on anybody. Nobody. Did you get that? Nobody should impose it. Now, but, they, but we're not consistent about that. Society isn't consistent about that. When push comes to shove, 
We're horrified by certain actions. Bullying is wrong. Kneeling on somebody's neck for nine minutes until they die. That's wrong, we say. Oh, where'd you get that idea? Where'd you get that idea? Where do such intuitive and uniform feelings come from? Well, <laughs> let's see where it don't come from. Morality or right and wrong, that's what I'm talking about here. Doesn't come from nature. Some argue that nature reveals that some kinds of behavior are fitting with the way things are and are just right. Really? But nature's violent. And we don't learn these feelings from nature around us where the strong prey on the weak. Is that true? I mean, uh, how many of you know David Attenborough? Huh? Yeah, see, some of you have been watching the series. It, it's good, eh? Those series are amazing. We used, we used to watch them all together. Planet Earth, the Blue Planet, so on. And I remember one in which a pride of lions stalked a herd of antelope watching for the, and this is what they watch for, listen to very carefully to what I'm saying, the young, the sick, and the weak. And that's what they prey on. They don't prey on the strong if they don't have to. They prey on the young, the weak, and the sick. Is that what we feel as humans we should do? Yes or no? No, absolutely not. You're right. Though some humans do that, we don't admire that. In fact, we're outraged by it when humans do it. I mean, we ha we've had pets most of our married life, including a dog, a variety of dogs. We're friends on our fourth one. They all die out on her. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> And, and a cat. And you know what they do? They, 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 our pets go and they hunt. And they get birds. And sometimes they do it when they're not hungry and they just play with the thing. Have you ever seen that? Doesn't that outrage you? No, it doesn't outrage you. Have you ever taken your dog, thrown him in the kennel, and thrown away the key for life? Because he caught a bird? Or killed a bird? Huh? But when a human does it, we do. By the way, that's an argument against evolution from animals. While we're at it. True? Instead, we admire in humans the opposite of that. We can't have got that from nature. Because nature isn't like that at all. It's the opposite of what, we're, what we admire, self-sacrifice. I'm thinking of a man by the name of Dirk Willems from Aspirin, Holland, Grace Fassel, like that. 1569. He was about to be arrested for being rebaptized at age 15 and believing other Anabaptist doctrines. And when he fled, he was hotly pursued by the thief catcher. He ran over a dangerous patch of water that had just iced over. His Pursuer, however, broke through the ice and would have drowned if Willems hadn't stopped and turned back to rescue him. The very man that's going to catch him and bring him to court. Soon after the rescue, the same thief catcher was dispatched to arrest Willems, who was then tried. 
declared guilty and sentenced to execution at the stake, where he was burnt to death. Now, we honor a memory like that. We admire something like that, don't we? Yes or no? We do. We admire that sort of thing. Even the world admires a Mother Teresa who worked among the poorest of the poor in the slums of India from age 18 to 87. She received so many awards worldwide, including the Nobel Peace Prize. And it's quite a list of prizes. We certainly didn't get this from the animal kingdom. Would you agree? Okay, morality didn't come from from nature. Well, maybe morality, morality can't be determined by cultures either. Anthropologists, they study the origins and developments of biological characteristics and beliefs and social customs and that sort of thing, right, in various cultures. That's what an anthropologist does. Anthropology believes that morality is in large measure, this is what that field believes. I'm not saying every single anthropologist. Do you understand me? But I'm saying as a field, it's dominated by the belief that morality is culturally determined, and so you shouldn't judge one's culture, uh, cu culture's morality to be better than another. Does it, do you understand? So that culture over there, they practice polygamy, you practice monogamy, you know, uh, multiple wives or one wife, uh, you shouldn't judge them, that's okay. It's equal in, uh, in right and wrong as your value. That's what they believe. At least that field is dominated by that belief. But not even anthropologists believe, believe that deep down. Think of this one, anthropologist Carolyn Fleur Loban was appalled by practices in societies she was studying that oppressed women. She was repulsed by that. She, she, she felt such a revulsion. She said, this is not just, this is not right. So she decided to promote women's rights in societies wherever she worked as an anthropologist. Wait, anthropology? That field has often criticized our missionaries for doing the exact same thing. But even they can't live consistently uh, with what they say they believe. So where did she, this, this, this Loban, get the right to uh, impose her views on other societies? She just took it on herself. Even she knew intuitively that not everything in every culture is right. See what I'm saying? Is everybody following me so far? Yes? yes. Just, just say yes. That makes me feel good. <laughs> then I go home and I say, they were with me all the way. <laughs> all right. You know, the Aztecs, indigenous people, they're from Latin America, they would take their victims to the top of their pyramid, and we've climbed some of those kinds of pyramids, and the priest would cut out the heart of the conscious living person and offer the still beating heart to the gods. 
Do you think such gory and horrific things are culturally relative and are equally good with cultures that say you shouldn't do that? Huh? No, you don't think that. You think that should be stopped. Exactly. But where did you get that idea from? Where did I get that idea from? Where does the world get that idea from? And what if the majority, sometimes they say, well, the majority should, in a culture, should determine what it is. But what if the majority decides that they should get rid of the minority? Like Nazi Germany, that gassed six million. The world was so horrified that it came together to stop it. But why? We just know that sexually assaulting babies is depraved. True? We just know that starving the poor is wicked and buying and selling each other is bad. Right and wrong aren't arbitrary or relative after all, are they? Somewhere, we know they're not right. Well, then morality, if it, morality can't, doesn't come from... Uh, if, if cultures can't tell us what is right and wrong, if nature can't tell us what is right and wrong, then where are we getting these signals or feelings of right and wrong, morality? Where are we getting it? We must be getting them from outside of humanity and outside of nature. Well, as soon as you go outside of humanity and outside of nature or creation, we're right back to where? Exactly, we're right back to God, like we talked about last week. Do you see that? There is only one person outside of the natural world, and that's God. Last week we deduced that God must, uh, is, must be tremendously powerful, intelligent, unique, personal, spirit, he must be a spirit, he must be eternal, self-existent. We talked about all those things, some, some of them very briefly, but we deduced that just from a few evidences for God. We could deduce it. Of course, Scripture tells us that, but we could deduce it logically as well. Is that true? We did. Um, now, we can deduce that God must also be good. For we are troubled when something is evil, and we rejoice when something is good. Huh. Now think about that. If we have internal signals that tell us what is good, God who made us can't be less than what we are, only more or better. Is that true? So if we know what is good, how much more does he know what is good? He made it. He, he put those signals in us. Paul calls it conscience. We call him conscience. True? Exactly. Therefore, God is morally good, made things, and made things to be good. Genesis 1.31 says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Now, though this included how nicely everything looked and worked, it was also a statement of the moral goodness of the universe. There was no evil in God's good creation. It was unspoilt at that point. And one day we're going to be in a, in, a, in a place like that. Are you looking forward to that? Amen, Amen is right. 
The darker it gets, the more I hope for the light. God hadn't created sin or evil. However, the happy tone was short-lived, as good turned out to be, as good turned to bad. So we come to the entrance of evil. How? I mean, if God is good and didn't create evil, in fact, if he is good, then what happened? Well, God granted Adam and Eve broad allowances to enjoy this paradise. They could eat fruit from any of the trees, including the tree of life. The Lord only had one prohibition. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will you will surely die. And in disobeying the prohibition, they would come to know the opposite of all the good they had experienced, and thus no good and evil. Hey, no, 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 just, 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 I know you're trying to grab that concept. But think of it like this. Uh, this works. God has laws in the natural world. Is that true? Everybody? Does God have laws in the natural world? Like gravity. True? If you violate that law, you come to know experientially bad. Is that true? The same God who created human beings made laws by which they could operate and work and when you violate those laws, you experience bad or evil. It's that simple. Uh, I remember many years ago, uh, an airplane, uh, when I was flying, an airplane took off. This is shortly after I started <coughs> from the base where I was. And it had, it had, it had a, a great deal of fuel oil on board, two pilots flying it this large aircraft, and it took off from the runway, and there's a cliff at the end, and, and you, you just take off, and suddenly you're way over the water. And uh, suddenly, the aircraft, with engines running, plunged into the water. What went wrong? They violated, oh, well, no, they didn't do it, but they didn't cause it, but the entire load shifted to the back. When it did, the aircraft did this. When an aircraft does this, it loses lift on the wing. That's a law. That's how it works. The wing stalled, and the air, uh, it literally it means that an aircraft is like a, like a rock in the air. It, no, it has no lift capabilities anymore. It's lost all lift on its wings. And it plunges like a rock. When we break moral laws of right and wrong and sin, it always causes us to experience bad or evil. Always without exception. Sometimes you see it immediately. Sometimes you see it in the interim, uh, you know, or in the intermediate time. Or sometimes you see it long term. And, and Fran and I have experienced all of, all of the above, and probably so of all, all of you if you've lived any length of time. It always, <laughs> you always experience 
bad. Young people, don't ever kid yourself. You say, this sin doesn't hurt me and doesn't hurt anybody else. Wrong. Wrong. It always, sin always pays and it always pays more than what you did. I mean, look at Adam and Eve. Are you serious? A piece of fruit in the garden? They ate an apple or whatever it was. <laughs> I don't know what it was. They ate one crummy little fruit. And it was lights out on the planet, morally speaking. Their oldest son became a murderer. Are you serious? I'm not saying that if you, you know, stole your mother's fruit this morning that, you, you know, your child is going to be a murderer. But they might. <laughs> or your wife might murder them for stealing the fruit, right? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? This is a big deal. And I have no idea where I am here, but that's okay. Okay, so then why did God allow evil to enter? I mean, if he didn't create it, and if it's so horrific, then why did God allow for it in the first place? Was it because he wasn't powerful enough? Maybe that's it. Well, no, wait a minute. We just found out last week he's incredibly powerful, right? Well, then maybe he isn't good after all. Um, if he did that. Well, let's stop here. Time out and let's take a look at it. The source of love is who? God. Exactly. God, or John taught us, he said, God is, everybody? Love. Very good. He didn't just say God loves. That's something. It says God is love. You and I can love, but we aren't love. True? You say, well, I, th th this is complicated. I don't, I don't get this. How is that possible? God is made up of how many persons? Three. Three persons. Not three gods. One God, three persons. They go on loving each other all the time. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They've been doing it forever. For eternity. That's why you can say God is love. That's where love comes from. Uh, it spills out of the Trinity. Number two, and, and, and the, the Trinity, the Godhead, the three persons in one, wanted us to have that same experience. Uh, he wanted us to love, or God wanted love to fill his good universe. And because we're made in the image of God, he wanted humanity to experience what the members of the Godhead experience. He didn't want us to live an emotionally cold and dead existence. He didn't want us to be a snail. Do you know what I mean? How would you like to be a snail? Huh? Anybody want to? No, I don't want to be a snail. That's what you're supposed to say. I don't want to be a snail. No. He didn't just want us to exist physically, but to be alive emotionally and spiritually. Love is the necessary ingredient for that. Ladies, you've baked things. Have you ever missed an ingredient? 
And what you thought you made, you didn't make. Is that true? I won't mention the puff wheat cake we ate the other night. <laughs> and I also won't look in this direction. <laughs> My wife's the best cook there ever is, but she bought the wrong ingredients and thought, well, well I, she wants me to get on with the message. <laughs> so that's what we're going to do. Come help me, honey. He didn't just want us to exist physically, but love is necessary for that. Even unbelievers know intuitively that love is the greatest universal virtue. Is that true? Everybody's talking about love. They don't know what it is. They don't know how to get it. But they all know that when they get a hint of it, it is amazing. True? Which is why they keep falling in love and then divorcing. Because they, they don't know how to love, but they know the feeling of love, and it is amazing, and you want it. True? For love is from God. Well, third, the condition necessary for love to exist is free choice. But love cannot exist if it's coerced or forced by another. My grandchildren are too big now. <laughs> but they used to, when I'd see them, they used to come and hug my legs. That's amazing feeling. <laughs> but if I would say to them, come and hug my legs. Do you think that does anything for me? Not a thing. True? Exactly right. It can't be demanded. It must be freely offered, and that's why God placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in, in Eden, not to tempt our first parents, but to give them a legitimate choice, to obey, not to obey, to love, not to love. That's why. If God had withheld the freedom of choice, we humans would have been stripped of what it is to be human, lower than a pet, just a robot. Lower than a pet, a robot. Fourth, it did not require a wrong choice for love to exist. And that's important. You say, oh, then they have to sin in order to. No, 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 no. The Trinity doesn't make wrong choices. It always chooses the right thing and always loves. They didn't have to make the wrong choice in order to experience love. So God was faced with a choice at creation. Prevent the existence of evil now by withholding free will and choice, thereby reducing us to machines or robots forever, or allow for the existence of evil now in the short term so that we could retain our humanity, our humanness, and ability to love for now and all eternity. I think you made a very good choice, don't you? That's what I'm looking forward to. Does that make sense? Make sense? I don't know what that or is doing way over there on the right, but uh, whatever. Anyway, that leaves us with one last piece, what God planned in response to evil. When Adam and Eve fell, Satan gloated. 
thinking he had succeeded in ruining God's creation, and he had. God said that there would be hostility within humanity from then on. You think that their sin didn't affect humanity? It sure did. And God said from here on in, you broke, you broke a law that I put, in, that I worked into the system, and now it's going to affect everything, just like breaking a natural law. And it did. And he said, now you're going to experience hostility or enmity. That's what it means, enmity or hostility between you. Uh, you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. But tucked in among the bad news, God promised to one day deliver a mortal blow to Satan and his followers, uh, followers' seed line, putting an end to the evil and misery that, uh, that he and they continue to perpetuate. This one verse has been called the first gospel or good news. The first good news, you know, you, people say, oh, you want to hear the gospel? I'll take, you to a, I'll take you to the New Testament. Oh, that's, that's fine, you can go there. But the first gospel was preached right after Adam and Eve fell, and God was the preacher. That was good news. Uh, this is the mother prophecy or promise or covenant which gives birth to all subsequent ones in the grand story of Scripture. Just like an apple seed um, contains all the DNA of the apple tree in it, so too this promise has all the DNA of God's plan to save the world in it. God planted this promise as a seed that would sprout, grow into a fully mature plant, and the rest of Scripture describes that, and that's what we're going to be talking about in this series. Wow. This promise sums up all of human history and lays out the plan. There's going to be enmity between you and her, you and her, and between her offspring, your offspring, and her, uh, and her offspring. That's history in a nutshell. That's where all the wars, all the fighting, all the persecution that we're, uh, we were honoring today, those who are persecuted, that's where all of that comes from. God said that's what would happen. And that one verse sums it all up. Okay, there's several important uh, important aspects found in this promise, and I, I, want, I want you to consciously put your thinking cap on now, okay? Everybody grab your cap and put it on now, okay? Got it? Perfect. Here we go. The first thing is an important understanding about the seed, because we are going to be coming back to this concept of the seed later on in the story. But if you get it now, it'll be a piece of cake, and we won't have to spend much time on it later. It'll be a piece of cake for you, okay? God said there would be enmity and hostility between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of Eve. And the Hebrew word for offspring is zera, or seed in English. Remember that word, seed. What's the word? One more time. What's the word? Seed. You never want to forget that word, seed. You don't have to remember the Hebrew word. The word zera, or seed, is always written in a singular as a singular noun, not seeds. It always is seed. 
but it has two senses, like our deer deer or moose moose, right? <laughs> we don't go moose meese. You know, I didn't, sh I didn't fight, you know, uh, I, I didn't shoot some meese. I shot moose. But in context, we figure out which one it is. True? With me, you would know, because I'm not a good shot. So you would know that I didn't get meese. <laughs> and then there... <laughs> My wife's shaking her head. I'm in trouble today, I think. Anyway, singular sense. One person that comes from that seed. So seed can be many seed, the collective seed. That's, that's uh, one thing, right? And then there can be a singular seed that comes out of the collective seed. Do you understand? One out of many. Everybody with me? Raise your hand. You are with me. Oh, my goodness. The context and grammar reveal the sense the writer intends. So let's look at the first part. Uh, uh, 3 verse 15. A. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Are we talking there about many or just one? Yeah, many. A bunch of you said many. Of course. Talking about the descendants. And oh, everybody would agree with that. This is clearly the spiritual descendants of Satan and Eve. Those who are going to follow Satan and those who are going to follow uh, the godly line of Eve. God said there would be ongoing hostility between those as we saw, you know, here about the International Day of, of the Persecuted Church. Then there's the singular sense in the second part or the end part of that verse. He shall bruise or crush you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. He was speaking about the many. Yes? You're with me. In the first part, he's speaking of many, right? But wait a minute, that's the wrong pronoun if he's speaking about many. Is that true? It shouldn't, it, it should read they. Isn't that what you would expect? But it doesn't. It switches to the masculine singular. But wait a minute, that breaks the rules of grammar. Because if you're going to write a pronoun there, it has to reflect the antecedent or the noun that's before it. So it should say they. Which means that God broke the rules of grammar. I guess he said, I think he made the rules of grammar, don't you? Yeah. He was trying to tell us something very special. Moses saw this and got it and said, uh-oh, something going on here. That's exactly right. And by the way, the verb and the object of the verb, they all agree with this whole change that suddenly happens to a singular masculine. It's talking about descendants, and suddenly it's talking about a descendant out of those descendants. Coming out of that. That's the significance. And I want you to remember that for the rest of your life. And the masculine pronoun, he, his, tell us that this unique single seed of the woman would be a male. Second important understanding about the battle. Oh, we are doing amazingly well. Oh, have you been able to follow so far? Yeah, yeah see? You guys are smart. And uh, not like 
I won't, I won't say, but you're smart. <laughs> and you're sticking with it. Way to go. That's awesome. Okay, not just an important understanding about the seed, one seed coming out of many, but an important understanding about the battle now. Though there is hostility between the two groups of descendants, two individual representatives of those groups engage in a fight to the death on behalf of their respective groups. In other words, oh, am I glad I have hands to talk. <laughs> Aren't you glad that we don't just have our mouths, but we have our hands? What would we do without them? We would never be able to communicate. Uh, so, what, what is going on here, you have a seed coming out of many seed, and this one fights the seed, the, the representative of this group over here. And they fight to the death. That's what that verse is saying. Does that make sense? All right. The, and he says, the, uh, that Genesis 3.15 here says, the outcome of the battle between Satan and the seed isn't in doubt. For it has already been determined. He says, he will, he will crush or bruise your heel, and, and, and he will crush his head. Which one wins on that? Right? Is it, is, it, is it hurtful when the heel is hurt? Oh, yeah, that's really painful. By the way, in the cru for crucifixion, and uh, the archaeologists discovered some remains of victims of crucifixion, and they, they were found to have nails driven not through the feet, as often depicted in artwork, but through the heels. And what they would do is they would they would drive the nail this way through the heel. That's how they would do it. And affix it to the, to the beam that way. And, and they found it. Uh, one is in uh, north, uh, northeast uh, Jerusalem. I can't pronounce it. In 1968, they found it. And another one in, in Italy in 2007 in northern Italy. Nevertheless, uh, God promised that the seed would be victorious, crushing Satan's head with a death blow. So, in this way, the seed will deliver all the descendants of the godly group or offspring of the woman from their mortal enemy, Satan. And, and I want to, you know, I was praying one day early in the morning, and I said, Lord, I, like, I really want to grasp this concept, like, really get it. You know, this one fights on behalf of this one, uh, sort of thing. And boom, right to my mind, he, he brought a, a, a story from Scripture to mind. And you all know it. It's the story of David and Goliath. And David is an Israelite. The Israelites are fi fighting the who? The Philistines. And who is a representative of the Philistines? Goliath, exactly right. And the deal that they made was, the two of us will fight. David, if you win, and you won't, because you're just a ruddy little runt, but if you do, we'll serve you. And vice versa. 
So they were going to fight on behalf of their collective groups. That's what's going on here. And uh, how did David defeat Goliath, by the way? Does anybody know how he defeated Goliath? Yeah. He, he shot him with a stone where? Yeah. He shot him in the head. Uh, do you know where the stone went? Have you ever read that carefully, where, where it went? Yeah, you know, boing, and phew, there goes the stone. Knocked him out. <laughs> That's not what it says. It's very specific. Exactly, in the temple, and it crushed his head, for it says that the stone sank into his head. In order to do that, it had to what? Say the word. It starts with a C and ends with an H. Yeah, oh, you guys, yes. It had to crush the skull. Do you see that? Had to crush it. What a fantastic picture of what he was saying in Genesis 3.15 and what a fantastic picture, type, of what God is yet going to do when he finishes him off. He's not finished yet. Satan isn't finished yet. There's been a, he's bruised Jesus, but he rose from the dead. And Jesus is coming back a second time, and then... Uh, um, well, uh, and then he will crush Satan's head once and for all. Are you glad about that? Me too. <laughs> and one more thing, an important understanding about the male seed. Apparently, Adam and Eve were given an important understanding about the male seed. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. The clause, with the help of, isn't actually in the Hebrew text. That little phrase there. Did I underline it there? Okay. It isn't in, in the text. And um, um, the, the sentence simply says, and this is what this, I, sh I should have put it separate, <laughs> but the sentence simply says this, I have gotten a man the Lord. Not with the help of the Lord. I have gotten a man, the Lord. That's significant. Somehow, Eve thought that this offspring of hers was somehow also going to be divine. That's the first hint we have of the God-man. Who we know is Jesus. <laughs> they didn't know at that time who it was, but already we have the gospel, the seed of the gospel way back at the beginning of time. Isn't that incredible? Wow. Eve misapplied this prophecy, thinking that her firstborn Cain would be this deliverer. And Luther noted, by the way, Luther noted this this peculiar thing of the Hebrew there that wasn't really there. He, he saw it in the Hebrew, and he translated it accordingly in the German. 
And he did so very intentionally because he understood that. Though Eve attached the prophecy to the wrong person, she knew that the human seed to come would, uh, from her descendants would somehow be Jehovah, the first idea that there is a God-man. So, we come to the end. What we've seen so far in the grand story is that in the beginning there was God. He's before all matter in all creation. And we learned that he is incredible. He's got all these characteristics. It's amazing. Today we see another evidence of him. Morality points to the existence of God. And we find out, despite what our world says, he's actually good. And scripture says that. And we can, we can deduce that he is good. It's incredible. We also learned that being good, he understood that it was important to allow for evil. He didn't create it, didn't introduce it. He warned them, Satan tempted them, they chose to disobey. But he allowed for it because he knew that in the... He, 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 he knew that it wasn't about the dot of the present, but about the line of the eternity. True? And he wanted you and I to live in an eternity that would be unspeakably good. And so he allowed temporary suffering, temporary hardship, and we all experience it to varying degrees. He allowed it so that one day we could be with him forever and know nothing but pure, unadulterated love and joy and peace and happiness and relationships forever. If you're here today, Maybe you're a young person and you've been listening to the deceptive lies of the enemy. Tell them to go in Jesus' name. No more. You need Jesus. He's the one that's going to crush him in the end. He's trying to deceive you just like he tried to deceive Adam and Eve. And God says there's a reckoning coming when he's going to be done with him. But so will all the seed that follows him. You're either on God's side or you're on Satan's side. There is no in-between ground. There is no fence to sit on. You're either on this side or you're on that side. True? That's how it works. If you think that you've been sitting on the fence, that's Satan whispering to you. He knows you're on the, on the other side. Then what you need to do is get up out of your seat and walk over to the other side and say, I'm going to be a follower of that God-man who's going to 
crush his head one day and remove all misery for eternity. True? That's what you need to do. Say, how can I do that? Why don't you pray with me right now? And tell, tell the Lord. You're not going to follow him anymore. You're going to follow the God-man, Jesus. Lord, I recognize that I've been listening to the devil. He whispers in my ear. He's so clever. And I thought I was thinking my own thoughts. And just like he fooled our original parents, I realize he's been fooling me into thinking that I can live both sides of the fence. I can't do it anymore. There's a price to pay. And today, I choose. I'm in my mind. I'm getting up and I'm walking to the other side and I choose the God-man, Jesus, who's going to crush the serpent's head, Satan, once and for all. And I look forward to that. Lord, forgive me for my sin because I've contributed with my sin to the moral decay of this planet. I've contributed to the problems in this world by, by following Satan. And I choose today to follow you. Please forgive me. I, I accept that you that you won the victory at the cross on my behalf, and I choose it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you.